When the night is darkest, a blinding light will banish it. As earthly dreams are dashed, eternal hope is born. A stone is rolled away, and the power of the grave is lost. A promise in doubt is fulfilled. The end is just the beginning. Renaissance Church invites you to experience Easter with us and celebrate the day the world changed forever. Well, good morning and welcome to Renaissance. My name is Chris. Good to have all of you here today. And uh, we're in the second week of a two-week series called Everyone. And uh, if you want, uh, if you have your smartphone or tablet, please uh, you can follow along with me. Go to renaissancechurch.org and uh, just click on U version, and you can kind of follow along there. Also, that's up all week long, and so until next weekend. And so if you're thinking to yourself, what was that verse? Where was Chris at in the Bible? Uh, it's always there, so you can always click on it and uh, kind of refer back to it. Well, uh, last week, Rich uh, kind of set up this series, and he uh, shared this story about this guy named Zacchaeus. And I'm not for sure for you, but uh, I grew up uh, listening to that story. I mean, since I was just uh, the smallest of a, uh, of a child, I, I've heard about the story about Zacchaeus. And there's this really annoying little song that goes along with Zacchaeus. Some of you are laughing because you know that song about being a wee little man. And now the rest of the day, you're going to be singing it in your head. And if you don't know that so- song, just be thankful. Just <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, go, oh, I'm glad I don't know what he's talking about, because it will start in your mind, and you can't, you know, wee little man, was he, like, it'll stick there. But uh, it wasn't until kind of my adult years, when I kind of re-engaged with that story, when I kind of re-looked at it and started studying again, that there was this kind of part of the story that I don't know if, like, the teachers just kind of glossed over, or I never picked up on, or it never grabbed my heart, but it's this one simple moment. If you missed last week, uh, please uh, feel free this week to go on to renaissancechurch.org, click on messages. You can watch the entire message. But there's this moment where Zacchaeus was up in a tree. And you see, Zacchaeus was this tax collector. And, and simply that means that he was extremely wealthy and very powerful. He received his power from Rome. The Roman government would, would kind of pick out people to be tax collectors in different cities and different regions. And, and so Zacchaeus had all the power of Rome behind him. And he was extremely wealthy because his job was to collect a percentage, a tax. We're kind of familiar with that principle around here. And, uh, and you would have to pay that to Zacchaeus for Zacchaeus to give it back to Rome. You see why Jews hated tax collectors is because not only would they collect that percentage to give back to Rome, but tax collectors would add on another percentage to line their pockets. So one day Jesus comes into town, Zacchaeus being a wee little man, wee little man was he, he climbed up 
I'm going to sing the whole song now. He climbs up into this tree. And Jesus walks by. And this is the moment that kind of grabbed onto me. Jesus starts having a conversation with Zacchaeus. The guy that everyone hates. The guy that everyone despises. The guy that, that people kind of would look down upon, would shove out of social circles. The guy that no one wanted to, to be around. And Jesus interacts with them and starts talking with him and starts engaging with him. Then the Bible says this. It says all, keyword all. All the people started to mutter. Isn't mutter a great word? We should use that more in everyday conversation. They started to complain. They started to whisper to each other. They started saying things like this. Man, I can't believe Jesus is talking to that guy. Man, doesn't Jesus know who he is? Man, I pray. This guy doesn't pray. Man, I, I love God. This guy doesn't love God. I've served God. This guy doesn't serve God. Why is Jesus paying attention to him and not me? Why is Jesus giving this guy time? And then all of a sudden Jesus goes, I want to eat with you today, Zacchaeus. Let's go to back to your house. Let's have lunch together. And could you imagine the muttering at that point? Whoa. Hey, Jesus, what about me? What about me? What about me? You see, 2,000 years ago, they were dealing with the same thing that we deal with today. Same thing. You see, there's this gravitational pull of every church towards keeping people and not reaching people. It's just true. I don't need to do a bunch of market research to verify that statement. Something happens to religious people, just like all the people gathered around Jesus as Jesus engaged with Zacchaeus, where they go internal, what about me? What, why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you inviting me? Not that guy. He's not worth your time. I'm worth your time. You don't want to talk to him. You want to talk with me. I'm good. I'm spiritual. I love God. I serve God. I pray to God. That guy doesn't. Jesus. And they complained. And you see, this country is lined with old, beautiful, iconic structures called churches that every Sunday sit empty. Sit empty. Why? Because the gravitational pull of every church and every church is made up of what? People. Is towards keeping about me, my wants, my desires, my needs, and not reaching people, people who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal, Rich used his quote last week. He said that, there, that there's this God-shaped hole in every man. In every man. 
And it can't be satisfied by created things. And all of us get that thought. Because all of us at some point in our spiritual journey have tried to fill that void with, with created things. Some of you are still trying to fill that void with created things. Some of you have neighbors or friends that are trying to fill that void with created things. They're trying to fill the void, but yet nothing will fill that God-shaped hole. And he goes on to say, only God the creator through Jesus Christ can that hole be filled. Only through Jesus Christ can that hole be filled. See, the word uh, evangelism, I'm not sure for your context, but I, I'm sure you're, many of you are like me. You hear that word and you have all these images that kind of creep into your mind or leap into your mind. It's that televangelist with perfect hair and way too much makeup, and you're like, what planet were they born on? Walking through the subway and there's someone standing there holding a sign screaming, you're going to hell. And you're like, oh, that makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside. Thank you. Or better yet, I love the people that come to your door. They knock on the door and they proceed before you can say anything. Hey, do you know Jesus? If not, you're going to hell. I'm like, well, thanks for telling me that. Why don't you come in and we can have tea together because I feel so connected to you at this point. And that word evangelism has been twisted and turned. And now, in the corporate world, Apple is using the word evangelist. I'm like, how, how do you get to use that word? But the church can't. You see, all that word means is to be a messenger of good news. Not hateful news, not damning news, not judgmental news, but good news of hope and love and grace and joy. That's the news. And you see, in that moment with Jesus, with Zacchaeus, with all the religious people muttering, guess what Jesus was doing? Hey, Zacchaeus, even you. Hey, Zacchaeus, I came for someone like you. Hey, Zacchaeus, yeah, 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 yeah. I hear all the people muttering. I hear all the people complaining. I hear all the religious people focused on themselves. But Zacchaeus, I want you to know, I came, I'm on this earth, and I'm going to die for people like you. See, here's my challenge for all of you. Because for some of you right now, just this whole idea of the gravitational pull of every church towards keeping people and reaching people, right now you want to mutter against that statement. Some of you, there's a tension right now. And this is what I would ask you to do. If you kind of feel that tension within you, you're like, I don't, Chris, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't agree with it. Chris, this is what I want you to do. Take some time. Take a week, take a month, whatever you need to take. Take a simple sheet of paper, Draw a line down the middle of the piece of paper on one side, on one column. Just write religious people. The other side you could put non-religious or others or whatever you want to label on the other side. And start making your way through the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have that much time, start with Luke. 
And every time Jesus interacts with a religious person, Pharisee, a Sadducee, group of people in Jer- Jericho huddled around muttering, watch and write down what Jesus says and how he interacts with them. And then every time Jesus interacts with that non-religious, that other person, that Zacchaeus type of person, write down what Jesus says and does and how he interacts with that person. And you'll start seeing this amazing picture Jesus dealt with the gravitational pull of religious people going internal. And Jesus relentlessly fought against that pull to say, no, I came to die for everyone, for all people. Last week, we saw this incredible picture of just Jesus and his commitment to reach Outside of that religious context, someone who desperately needed to have a relationship with him. Jesus models it for us. This week, we're going to look at a different story. And what I want to do in this story uh, is just simplify this whole idea of evangelism. Because I get there's so many things attached to that word evangelism. For some of you, you're like, man, I'm not a theologian. What if I, I talk to someone about God and Jesus and the Bible? I don't have the answers. I, Chris, I'm not like you. I don't have the answers. I, Chris, I'm not even sure what I believe right now. I, how can I evangelize if I'm not even sure if I believe about God or Jesus? What you're going to see today, it doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, whether you believe in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, wherever you find yourself, guess what? God wants to use you. And it's really simple. It's really simple. Let me set up the story for you. It's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And one of the first things Jesus did when he kind of came on the scene and started his public ministry, he's around 30 years old, is he started to gather his disciples. And maybe you hear the word disciples and you think that's a, a really Christianese type of word. But you know what? It's not a Christian word really at all. It was a word very common for Jewish rabbis. They would gather disciples, followers of a rabbi. And you see, if you were a rabbi in that Jewish culture, basically the more uh, followers, the more disciples you would have, guess what? The more influence, the more authority that you would have as a rabbi. And Jesus, interestingly enough, limited the number of his disciples to 12. Not hundreds, but 12. And so some of his first disciples... He called was Andrew and Andrew's brother, uh, Simon. Maybe you've heard of his other name, Peter. And so on one day he calls them and they leave their fishing industry, their business, and they start to follow this man named Jesus. And this is what happens the next day. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. The simple command to follow me. And it's easy to bounce into this verse and go, oh, that's nice. Jesus said, follow me. And Philip said, yes. But think about if you were Philip. I'm I'm not sure what Philip was doing that day, but he was probably on his way to work or uh, uh, on his way back home. 
And he encounters Jesus and has this conversation. And something about that conversation, something about that interaction, something about that moment captivated Philip. But do you think Philip had questions? Do you think he had doubts? Do you think that, man, there's some tension within his faith? I'm sure something kind of filled that that God-shaped hole, but yet he was still human. So like, he's still like you and me. I'm sure he still goes, man, there's something different about that guy, but really? I'm I'm sure he kind of paused and going, okay. I'm not sure, but there's something there. There's something motivating me. There's something moving within me. There's something that's there's something there. You see, Philip was living through what was called the Messianic Age. Maybe you've read about this, maybe you've never heard about this, but there was hundreds of years what the, they kind of called the Messianic Age. There's all these messiahs coming because the prophecy stated that There's going to be a promised Messiah coming to lead Israel, to be the Savior of Israel. And so they would have Messiahs just kind of pop on the scene. They'd travel through towns going, I'm the promised one, I'm the promised one. And guess what? They'd fade out. People would realize that's not a real Messiah. And so it wasn't uncommon for this to happen. But yet, in this moment, on this day, with Jesus, it was different. And the first thing that Philip did, get this, Philip found Nathaniel. He went to find his friend. Now, I'm sure there was a lot of names that kind of bounced into Philip's mind. You know, brothers, sisters, parents, work associates, Golfing buddies, except they didn't play golf back then, but they might have, right? All these names, but Nathaniel came to the top of his mind, and he went to find his friend. We don't know much about Nathaniel. He's not mentioned, except for just a couple times throughout the New Testament. But something motivated him to go find his friend. And when he found his friend, it says that he told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Listen to what he says to his friend. Hey, no, 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 Nathaniel. I know there's there's been many different messiahs claiming to be the one. And they're not. They haven't been. But this time, this time it's different. This time, Nathaniel, I'm just telling you, this time... I've talked with him. I've interacted with him. There's something about this Jesus. And Nathaniel, you know. You know what Moses wrote about. Nathaniel, you know what the prophets have said. Nathaniel, you know. And I'm telling you, this is the one. This is the one. Like any good friend. Because you can just kind of feel and sense the sarcasm in Nathaniel's reply. This is what he says. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Like, there's just this visceral reaction that, that Nathaniel has to 
this town of Nazareth. It'd be like this. If you're a Yankees fan in here, and uh, uh, you happen to see a person, I mean, maybe uh, uh, walking uh, down, down the street, maybe in the, uh, in the subway, maybe who, wh- wherever you might be, you see someone with anything that has to do with a Boston Red Sox uh, logo jersey on, what's your reaction? You don't even know the person, and you hate them, right? <laughs> like, if you found yourself uh, uh, with a flat tire on 78. And all of a sudden, someone actually pulls over, which I know is unthinkable around here. But someone actually pulls over, and you see like a Boston Red Sox like sticker on their car. You will tell them to go. Like, no, no, really, I don't want your help. Just like for the, the one or two Mets fans in, in the room, you have the same reaction towards Yankees fans, right? You just hate them. I mean, you're really bitter because your team doesn't win. But you're still, you, it's okay. Again, if you're... the Two of you out there, it's okay. I'm a Cubs fan. Remember, I'm a Cubs fan. I understand your pain. There's this visceral reaction, and this is what Nathaniel has just for this city called Nazareth. We don't know much about this city. It was never mentioned in the Old Testament. Josephus, the famous uh, uh, historian, never writes about Nazareth. The little bit we know is this, that it was this kind of small town that was isolated. It wasn't on the major trade route called the Via Maris, so it wasn't a major trade city, but it was also away from the Sea of Galilee. This past November, a team of us, we were uh, in Israel, and we got to spend some time in Nazareth, and it's amazing because you see all these towns around the Sea of Galilee, right? 2,000 years ago, the water source, right? That, that, that's life or death. You have water, you live. You don't have water, you die. And Nazareth isn't even close to that water source. Some recent archaeology suggests that there might have been a, a pretty significant Roman garrison there housing soldiers. If that's the case, it, you would, it would even intensify uh, the Jew, Jewish kind of uh, view on Nazareth because they hated the Romans. But for whatever reason, Nathaniel was like, come on, Philip. Man, the Messiah is not going to come from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from there. You see, what I find interesting is this. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. It was a city from which King David came from. It was a city of royalty. It was a city of honor. It was a city of prestige. That's where Jesus was born. Fitting to be the Messiah. You see, what happened was King Herod went out to kill all the firstborn because he had heard these rumors about the promised Messiah being born. And so Joseph and Mary, uh, they take Jesus and they uh, flee to Egypt. And when the danger kind of subsided, they decided to come back and settle in Nazareth. From a city of royalty to a slum. From a city where everyone looked up on to a city where everyone despised. And in this moment, Nathaniel's like, there's no way, Philip. 
And you think about all of the, 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 the numerous different replies that Philip could have given his friend in this moment. He could have had this argumentative rebuttal. He could have engaged him in a theological conversation. He could have tried to emotionally manipulate him. There's so many different ways that Philip could have come back to his friend and respond to his friend and kind of uh, connect in this moment. But Philip didn't do any of those things. Listen to what Philip says. Come and see. Come and see. What a simple response. Hey, Nathaniel, I know you have questions. Come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, I, I, I get that nothing good can come from Nazareth. Come, come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, I understand there's been many messiahs that we've interacted with, some really crazy. This one's different. Come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, I, I know you have doubts. I do too. Come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, I know you have a list of questions. I do too. Come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, I know for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people have been waiting for the Messiah. Come and see. Hey, Nathaniel, man, we're friends. I'm telling you, there's something different. Come and see. See, evangelism, sharing the good news, it's truly that simple. It's that simple. It's why we talk about the everyone a lot. Because we're going to fight the gravitational pull of every church. And I'm just telling you, we're committed to reaching people to helping to connect people with the life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the power of everyone is this. One, it says that you're hyper-focused on that individual. That you care so deeply for who they are and their spiritual journey. But every keeps your head looking up, realizing that God is going to use you to connect with other people. Daily, these moments, these relationships, where you can have a simple come and see conversation. One says that you'll do whatever you can to help that person grow in their spiritual journey. Whether you have the answers or not, whether it's convenient or not, whether you uh, have your own doubts and your own concerns or not, wherever you find yourself out spiritually, that you're going to be committed to say, hey, let's do this together. Because remember, the disciples themselves, they had questions, they had doubts, they had concerns. Remember Thomas. I mean, Jesus has been buried, he's risen from the grave, and Thomas is still saying, I'm not sure. I've been following this guy. I've been watching the miracles. I've been listening to his teaching. And there's a part of me that believes that he's a promised Messiah, but I want to touch his hands. I want to touch his side. I want to make sure that he is really alive. I mean, Philip and Nathaniel were still working through their spiritual journey. 
But there was something about Jesus that moved them. There's something about Jesus that started to fill that God-shaped hole. Every, it's understanding that we should have an urgency to tell people. An urgency. Time's ticking. Time's moving. And we should look up and realize that God wants to use us to have come and see type of conversations with people. One is understanding what God can do through you. Because God wants to use you, your mouth, your intellect, your hands, your feet, you to connect people to a life-saving relationship with Jesus. And every, realizing that, guess what? Christ came and died for all people. All people. He wants all people to hear about Him. He wants all people to have a chance to connect with Him. He wants all people to experience his grace. You see, it's about the everyone. Penn and Teller, a famous uh, illusionist, magicians, whatever you want to, kind of box you want to put them in if you've never heard of them. Um, yeah. Penn is a very uh, outspoken atheist. Very outspoken atheist. Very intellectual. It's not just that emotional atheist that can't intellectualize and articulate what they believe. He really can. And he said this. He said, how much does someone have to hate? How much do you have to hate someone to believe in everlasting life and not tell them about it? from an atheist and when I read that interview and when I read his statement he's right on my parents uh, were raised in a very different but pretty chaotic kind of uh, religious surroundings my mom was raised by two parents that cohabitated together. They were great grandparents, awesome grandparents. Not real good parents, but great grandparents. And uh, their idea of church and religion was uh, Easter and Christmas. So my mom just grew up going, oh, it's Christmas. We go to church. And Easter, I might get a new pretty dress, and we go to church. Many of you maybe were raised in the same type of context. You know, Easter and Christmas, Easter and Christmas, Easter and Christmas. And that was God. For my mom. That was religion for my mom. It was just, oh, two boxes a year. We check those two boxes and we've done our duty. My dad's was on the more chaotic kind of side. Uh, his mom uh, was just an abusive, nasty lady. Uh, his dad was uh, an alcoholic. Um, I mean, he worked very hard and was very successful in business, and then he would drink himself to sleep every night. And, uh, and then his stepmom, uh, was the town uh, organist and piano player. 
for whichever church paid her the most. And so my dad grew up going, well, um, whatever church would pay her more, we'd start attending that church. So my dad was Mormon and Lutheran and Catholic and Methodist and Presbyterian and whatever else. And he was really messed up. And, uh, and so he just knew, oh, we're now at the Lutheran church. I guess they're paying uh, stepmom more. But what even intensified his kind of spiritual framework was, you know, he has a, a stepmom that's playing for all these churches, but yet would look at my dad and say, I don't love you. You're not my son. Try to work through that as a child. Wait, you play for God, but yet you don't love me? You play for God, but yet... So somehow they met, somehow they got married. They had my sister and myself, and they settled down in Tempe, Arizona. I was really, really young. And uh, there's a couple several doors down named Marvin and Mildred Plank. And one day, one day they invited my parents over for dinner. Now at dinner, they, they didn't... Uh, bring out a big old Bible and open the Bible. At dinner, they didn't ask my parents, are you going to go to hell? Right? At dinner, there was just no religious conversation at all. It was simply dinner. And they started to build a relationship. My parents were young parents at, uh, uh, at that time. And if you are a parent, you've been a young parent at, at one moment in your parenting. And, uh, uh, if you think back or you're, if you're in that young parenting stage, you realize uh, as a parent how clueless you are. And uh, I'm right there right now going, man, I'm going to have a junior high girl. next. Oh, man, I'm clueless. And so Marvin and Mildred started helping my parents parent. And Marvin and Mildred started helping my parents understand what a healthy marriage truly is about. And over time they had a come and see conversation with my parents. Over time, they started talking to my parents about Jesus and how Jesus is so, so different than religion because Jesus desires to have a relationship. And over time, they were able to break down some of my parents' childhood upbringing around church and religion and just say, no, 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 let's get back to Jesus. And because of Marvin and Mildred Plank, my entire life, the trajectory of my entire life changed. Absolutely spiritually it changed. But you know more than that? My dad had no framework what it meant to be a dad, a husband, and a man of God. I mean, my dad's only reference point of a father was a drunk. My dad's only reference point for a loving mother was abusive or emotionally unattached. And you see what happened? When, when my dad and when my mom encountered Jesus Christ and, and accepted him, that relationship with him change them from the inside out because that's what happens jesus will fill that god-shaped hole and he will change you from the inside out and i'm sitting here today 
with a mom and dad that have a thriving, growing marriage to this day. I'm sitting here today with a mom and dad, not perfect. No parents are perfect. But I have a great framework for what it means to be a dad and a husband and a man of God. I'm sitting here today because of Marvin and Mildred Plank, who understood the value of the everyone, who understood the value of a come and see relationship, who understood the value that them as Christ followers wasn't about them and what they wanted and what they desired, about keeping. It was about reaching. And it has now impacted generations. Several weeks ago, we had baptisms in here. And me as a dad was able to baptize my youngest daughter. Because Marvin and Mildred Plank decided to have a come and see conversation. It's that simple. And let me tell you this. If you are a Christ follower, I, I hate to even frame it this way that, that, that God commands you to have come and see relationships. Because he shouldn't have to command you. It should just be part of the rhythm of your life. My wife's been building a relationship with a lady. Um, my youngest daughter and her daughter uh, do gymnastics together. Oh, it's been hilarious trying to see my daughter do a cartwheel. I mean, I don't laugh in front of her because that would be bad parenting, but it's funny. Uh, and they've been building this relationship. And uh, yesterday, Kim comes home. She had to run to a house because it's Girl Scout cookie time, which is, it's horrible because Thin Mints are so amazing. And uh, she comes home and she goes, hey, you know this, this, this lady that I've just been building a relationship with? I said, yeah. And she goes, you know, she goes to church twice a year. And so I just had this moment holding a box of Girl Scout cookies where I looked at her and said, hey, I, I know that next week you have to go to church because it's the two times a year you go to church. She goes, yes. She goes, why don't you come and check out Renaissance? Just come and see. It's different. You know what she said back to my wife? I've already been online. You're right. That's a different church. Simple. Holding a box of Thin Mints. I'm going to spend a lot of hours at the gym this week. <laughs> come and see. Just come and see. And if you're sitting there going, Chris, I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't. Maybe you believe in God and you're not sure about Jesus. I'm just telling you. The 12 disciples, the 12 followers of Jesus were still working through their questions and their doubts and their issues. See, that's the journey. That's the movement. Obviously, you're trying to fill that hole. That's why you're sitting here. So maybe bring someone with you. Maybe bring a Nathaniel with you. Easter is next weekend. Two times a year where people are the most open to invite their friends and have a spiritual conversation, Christmas and Easter. We have invite, invite cards throughout this entire building. You can go online and you can share the Easter video. It's on Facebook. You can grab that. Send someone the link to our website. There's so many different ways. What I'm praying for with absolute expectation is you leave here today and you go find your Nathaniel. You go find your one and you just say, come and see. And you never know. It could change a life.
for generations to come. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together today. And Lord, I just pray with absolute expectation that you're going to move within people. The numerous come and see conversations that are going to be had. And Lord, they might say no this time. You never know. They might say yes. And you never know the change that might happen if they choose to engage with Jesus in a relationship. Lord, I pray for Easter. I pray for uh, what you're going to do across this planet. Share the good news of your son. In your name I pray, amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.